single night I endure the flight Of little wings of white flame Butterflies in my brain These ideas of mine Percolate the mind Trickle down the spine Swarm the belly Swelling to a blaze That's where the pain comes in Like a second skeleton Trying to fit beneath the skin I can't fit the feelings in No, oh, every single night's a light With my to the welcome to the podcast i'm brian and this is episode uh what is it 20 25 of let's see let's check since we're stating it for all time um hmm 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 Hmm. 24. Welcome to episode 24 of For All Time. My name is Brian. It is, uh, oh, you're joining me at unknown time too. You're joining me on uh, Friday, May 6th at 4.22 p.m. And today I have a couple different things. 
a couple different things for you. And you're going to enjoy all of it. Including my bumbling around as I find all my papers. So. <clears throat> this is from the business and finance section of yesterday's Wall Street Journal, I believe, right? No, Wednesdays. Anyway. Shortage of chips now hurts chip making. I just found this kind of interesting. It's like uh, the feedback loop of the feedback loop by Aza Fitch. It's going to be a short episode, by the way. The drought in chip availability that has hit auto production, raised electronics prices, and stoked supply chain worries in capitals around the globe has a new pain point, a lack of chips needed for the machines that make chips, industry executives say. The wait time it takes to get machinery for chip making, one of the world's most complex and delicate kinds of manufacturing, has extended over recent months. Early in the pandemic, it took months from placing an order to receiving the equipment. That time frame has stretched to two or three years in some cases, according to chip making and equipment executives. Deliveries of previously placed orders are also coming in late, executives say. As a result, hopes of quickly overcoming the global chip shortage are in are dimming as it stretches into its third year. What began as a pandemic era aberration of supercharged demand for laptops and other chip-hungry gadgets has spiraled into a structural problem for the industry. Now many chip executives say that the problem will persist into 2023 and 2024, or even longer. There's this wishful thinking that by the end of 2022, supply will be balanced with demand, said Tom Caulfield, chief executive of contract chip manufacturer Global Foundries, Inc. I just don't see it. Doug Leffler, chief executive of Advantest America, Inc., said typical lead times on his company's machines, which test whether newly made chips function correctly, have doubled or more. The company's testing machines use some 250,000 parts, and a hiccup in supplies of just a handful can cause delays. I think we're in it for quite a while before we get completely back to standard lead times, Mr. Leffler said. Ganesh Morthy, CEO of Microchip Technology Inc., a maker of a microcontroller a maker of microcontroller chips that process data in all kinds of electronic devices, including chip making equipment, said his company is now treating chip equipment suppliers as priority customers, not unlike the way it treated medical device manufacturers at the onset of the COVID pandemic. We have taken the posture that if equipment manufacturer and equipment manufacturer identifies a specific microchip product that is a bottleneck for them, it goes right onto the top of our priority list, he said. Chip companies are press <laughs> chip companies are pressing for such preferential treatment, arguing that if deliveries to semiconductor makers are given priority, I'm assuming they're saying the issue can be sorted out sooner. The shortage will ease more quickly. Yes. A recent industry white paper argued that the benefits of such a multiplier effect, a sophisticated testing tool, uh, a multiplier effect, period. A sophisticated testing tool requires 80 specialist chips that can be reprogrammed after they are produced, the analyst said, but 
than aids in making 320,000 of those same chips each year. Tools aren't the only headache. Chip makers point to the challenge of hiring new people to work in new factories, supply chain hiccups in essential chemicals, and a shortage of substrates that connect chips to circuit boards as compounding the relative dearth of semiconductors. Yes, the uh, the green stuff that makes up the uh, the boards that all the electronics sit in, the, the, the green stuff there, that's in short supply. Tools aren't the only headache, etc. Meanwhile, demand is showing little sign of ebbing. Chip industry sales topped $500 billion for the first time last year and should roughly double by the end of the decade. Lead times for chip deliveries remain at historic highs. In April, they averaged more than six months. According to an estimate by Susquehanna Financial Group, almost double where they stood at the height of the last boom period. The pain could ease in some industry segments this year, said Peter Hanbury, partner specializing in chip technology at Bain & Co., with new factories becoming online that produce older generation chips that have been a bugbear for automakers and others. It goes on and on, but uh, you get the idea. The feedback loop is creating its own feedback loop. All right. On to the main thing, this, uh, this issue here. Musk maps Twitter's public return. Billionaire tells investors he envisions IPO after a few years of private ownership. By Cara Lombardo and... Elliot Brown, Elon Musk, who has agreed to take Twitter Inc. private in a $44 billion deal, has told potential investors he could return the social media company to public ownership after just a few years. Mr. Musk said he plans to stage an initial public offering of Twitter in as little as three years of buying it, according to people familiar with the matter. The deal is expected to close this year, subject to conditions including the approval of Twitter's shareholders and regulators, the company has said. Mr. Musk, Tesla Inc.'s chief executive, has been speaking to investors such as private equity firms, which could help lower the $21 billion he plans to kick in to help pay for the deal. The rest of the money is coming from loans. One considering participating is Apollo Global Management, Inc., the Wall Street Journal has reported. Private equity firms often take companies private with an eye towards fixing them up outside the spotlight and then taking them public again within five years or so. Mr. Musk's signal that he plans to do something similar could help assure potential investors that he would work quickly to improve Twitter's business operations and profitability. He has given few details about his exact plans for the company other than he, than he wants it to be less censorious in content moderation. At one point, he said he doesn't care whether he makes money on the deal. Mr. Musk has a history of missing his timelines and projects. Targets at Tesla, the electric car company. Even though Mr. Musk is the world's richest man, scraping together the funds, scraping, as they said, to seal the deal uh, was no mean feat. He once managed to, uh, once he managed to do so, Twitter's expected resistance eased, and the two sides quickly agreed to a deal at the original offer price of 54.20 a share. So 54.20 a share uh, equaled $44 billion. Anyway, remember that deal that uh, Elon, uh, the, the Hubbard deal that Elon Musk was uh, there saying it was going to happen? Well, now it's actually happened. 
and uh, now the the thing has gone through. So all the things that they said were going to happen or not happen or whatever. Now they could be happening if they were really going to be happening, which they're not. But uh, my guess is, uh, since I spend so much time on the program, he spends an enormous time on the platform, and he just loves it, kind of wanted to buy it like a collectible. I don't know, he'll shuffle around, he'll add a couple of features, take off a couple of features, he'll pretend like he owned it. The value will go up just because Elon Musk was attached to the company, and then they'll sell it, it'll go back to exactly the way that it was before. That's my guess. But we'll find out. A sizable majority of American voters on both sides of the political divide are not concerned about Elon Musk's $44 billion purchase of Twitter, according to a new Fox News poll. The poll, released Wednesday, found that 62% of registered voters don't think the platform's takeover by Tesla CEO and the world's richest person really matters. Among the 1,003 people surveyed, 43% said it didn't matter, quote, at all, while 19% said, quote, not much. Meanwhile, just 20% said that the purchase matters a great deal, and 16% said it only matters some. Among Republicans, 60% said the purchase doesn't matter, while 38% said it does, uh, while the results of Democrats was 59% and 38%, so virtually the same. The independents were especially indifferent, with 70% saying it doesn't matter. Because it doesn't matter. Every company in the world that's worth billions of dollars is owned by all kinds of fucking scumbags. Like... That's just a fact. You don't get to know, like, and do the research every time before you buy a product. I mean, you could drive yourself insane and you run out of time before you bought anything that you needed. Like, so you don't. You can't be expected to. It's not like a requirement of society to be aware of all these things. Got a new book by this author that I like. And uh, I've read a little bit of another book on the program. But here's another, uh, this is another one of uh, Danielle Lindemann's uh, sociological examinations. In an office building in Midtown Manhattan, a woman in her early 20s is describing the last time she flogged someone in this room. She's clutching the flogger she used, which consists of a wooden handle wrapped in straps of leather, which hang in a series of other flat straps. It's like a stubby mop, but it's designed to administer pain. Clutching the handle, she begins to move her hand from side to side in circular motions, making the figure eights with her fist. I did the heaviest corporeal I have ever done on him, she explains. A lot of flogging. Her hand begins to speed up as she flicks the device at one of the posts with a large metal suspension frame for emphasis. I used the tack whip on him while he was bound to the cross, and then I took him off the cross and tied him to one of the posts of the suspension frame, and I did a lot of, like, kicking him and punching him in the chest and some ball and cock slapping and a lot of nipple torture, end quote. I began to understand how she inspires fear in her clients, though she is young and small. It's an unseasonably warm afternoon, in early March of 2008, toward the end of my fieldwork for this project, I had arrived here early, pressed the buzzer, and waited to be let inside, then waited again in the elevator for the receptionist upstairs to view me on the elevator's closed-circuit television and send me up to their floor. 
When I got out of the elevator, I was in a dimly lit entryway with one wooden door flanked by two vases holding decorative twigs. On the wall to my left was a mirror in an ornate frame. I knocked. The receptionist let me in, led me to the waiting room, and asked me if I'd like something to drink. I opted for water, and she returned with a chilled bottle along with a glass and a paper napkin, which she placed on the table in front of me. Then she left, drawing the purple curtain that separated the waiting room from the rest of the space. I was alone in the room. Now I'm thirsty. Hold on. I took out my notebook and recorder. To my right was a small end table on which were arrayed a jar of peppermints, a box of tissues, a cup filled with pens, and a pad of paper. The coffee table in front of me was stocked with a variety of reading material ranging from issues of New York Magazine to erotic photography books to the Encyclopedia of Wine. Next to the table was a green padded bench with five thick black straps stretching over the seat in parallel. The floor was hardwood, and the room was windowless, but somehow airy. The ceiling was high. I'd been waiting for about five minutes when my informant arrived, a well-spoken woman, apologizing for being late in a soft voice. At first glance, she seemed too shy to command much fear, but then I wasn't one of her clients. Looking at her in her tank top and lounge pants, at the glasses stuck on her nose, at the blonde hair pulled back into a bun, my immediate impression was that she could easily be one of my undergraduate students. She offered to give me a tour of the space and took me out of the waiting room to the right past the receptionist area to a door marked one. This is where she demonstrates the flogger. The main feature of room one is a suspension frame, a metal apparatus with an industrial feel that towers over our heads. Cables run down from each of the four suspending posts and attach to the corners of a floating table. To the right of the frame, is the cross that the woman describes having used in her last session and a closet filled with a variety of items in plastic bins with computer printed labels, platform heels, cleaning supplies, shackles, mummification wrap, straight jackets, medical implements, twine, mitts, canes, floggers. Several body bags hang in the closet door. On the way out of the room, she gestures at the iPod player on the table by the door and indicates that she and the other girls make playlists to keep track of time in their sessions. We leave the room and walk past the receptionist again, then a long hallway past the girls' dressing room on the left, and then back through the waiting area. I remark about the bench with the straps, and she explains that something, uh, sometimes she does sessions in the waiting room, but it's generally used for consulting with clients beforehand. The straps are primarily decorative. In quotes. We move further down the hallway, past a kitchenette, and then do an art, <laughs> to an art deco bathroom with a shower, past a door marked three to the end of the hallway and a door marked two. Room two is about half the size of room one, and its main feature is a large four-poster bed. It, too, has a St. Andrew's cross, in addition to a, quote, spanking horse, which resembles a padded sawhorse, a wooden throne, quote, for foot worship, and a chest of drawers stocked with items for clients to enjoy, cross-dressing, 
jewelry, hats, and lingerie. There's also a closet with a mirrored door. It contains a variety of items, including more shoes, gags, a latex maid's outfit, and about a dozen wigs arranged on a line of foam heads. Room 3, which is used primarily for cross-dressing and foot worship, is the smallest of the session rooms. It also includes a throne, as well as a padded table edged with eye bolts, a, quote, bondage bed. There's a chest of drawers containing cleaning supplies, puppy toys, condoms, and vibrators. There is a mirror over the bondage bed and mirrors on all the walls. I remark about the multiple mirrors in all of the session rooms. For the clients, it's all about the visuals, I am told. We make our way back to the waiting room where she tucks her legs under her as she settles on the couch. I perch on the edge of the couch again and we begin the interview. This book is about the women like the one I interviewed on that warm March day. Professional dominatrices, hereafter pro-doms. Male clients also referred to as submissives, subs, or slaves. Pay them money for the experience of being physically and verbally humiliated, flogged, spanked, whipped, caned, slapped, kicked in the groin, urinated on, forcibly, in quotes, uh, cross-dressed, tied up, treated like pets, and to play out a variety of other sadomasochistic and fetishistic scenes. Pro-doms refer to their workspaces as dungeons, houses of pain, or simply as houses, or play spaces. Few have intercourse with their clients, but their work is erotic in nature, and more often than not, involves sexual release on part of the clients, either through vibrator stimulation, spontaneous orgasm without touch, or more commonly, the clients masturbating to climax. The puzzle that this book presents is the following. What can pro-dom's narratives about their encounters in the dungeon, seemingly on the periphery of society, teach us about the set of tensions that undergrid our daily lives in the real world? The quote-unquote real world, as told. To work this puzzle, I develop a main argument with two prongs that operate in tandem. First, although this is an industry structured around interactions that are organized as inversions of the male-female power hierarchy, the industry is also normatively patterned in the sense that social expectations from everyday life work themselves into the dungeon. Pro-dom stories about their interactions with their submissives thus contribute to our understanding of gender and control by allowing us to understand what an inversion of our gender power arrangement can look like, while at the same time speaking to the persistence of this arrangement. In short, although their activities are submissive, in many ways, pro-doms also replace relationships of hierarchy and illuminate them. Second, the people who inhabit this social world highlight a set of social relations what we suppress in, that we suppress in daily life. These include hidden facets of gender, control, hierarchy, and eroticism. For instance, relationships of control within professional exchanges and elements of male gender display that are subordinated to compulsory expressions of hegemonic or quote-unquote complicit masculinity. In this case, observing this set of relations within daily life is akin to looking through a foggy window. Pay attention here. I like this. We know that things are happening. We can make out the vague movement of shapes, the play of light, the green blur of grass, and the mushroom tops of the trees. Being given a cross to a world that is structured around these suppressed social elements is like sliding a hand across that window and looking again. Now, in the clear patch of grass, we can see the blades of grass. Now we can see the leaves on the trees. 
professional dominatrices' narratives about their labor thus defog a series of classic binaries that structure everyday experience. I love that term, defog, there. I think it can be applied to a lot of other um, fields of... Uh, just the, that, that vocabulary can be um, used in a lot of other places. Let me repeat the sentence. Professional dominatrices' narratives about their labor thus defog a series of classic binaries that structure everyday experience. Male, female. Normal, abnormal. Dominator, dominated. Provider, consumer. So I really find that one interesting. Researcher, subject, also interesting. And purist and commercialist, also interesting. Bringing them into crisp focus. In doing so, they also cause, call these binaries into question. One of the salient arguments of this text, for instance, is that pro-dom's characterizations of their work elucidate the fact that neither these women nor their clients maintain total control over the BDSM, bondage, discipline, sadism, and masochism encounter. Generally, the participants jockey for control, both within the dungeon and during their, quote, scripting sessions beforehand. This struggle may be viewed as deeply transcendent of the dominant-submissive binary, at the same time that the very essence of pro-dom's work relies upon this duality. Because, of course, you have to like describe what you want in the first place, which wouldn't be the natural circumstance, but then what would be, unless this was permitted or done in the way that it is. It is important not to only seek out the corners of social life that have not been fully uh, limbed by social scientists, but also to assess the basic processes of work in daily life. By setting out to do both, I embrace a framework that is inherently queer in nature. Stephen Epstein points out that queer theory, quote, analyzes puritively marginal experience, but in order to expose the deeper contours of the whole society and the mechanisms of its functioning, describing the, quote, assertion of the centrality of marginality, the, quote, pivotal queer move. 1994, page 197, really? Thank you. But considering the world of commercial BDSM not only interesting in its own right, but also revealing of larger social processes and conventions, we can make this move. I'll continue. Though not explicitly about LGBTQ+, plus, as we would say these days, uh, this text represents a queering of everyday life. It applies queer theoretical framework to a particular set of liminal activities, shedding light on the binaries. For instance, normal, abnormal, and kinky, conventional, that perpetuate the marginalization of such practices. Hang in with me. I promise we'll get there. By focusing on pro-doms, this book identifies, thus, the principles of erotic exchange at work in a largely unexplored subculture. But it also limits limbs the depths of everyday practices, contributing to our understanding of such major elements of social life as gender relations, power, dominance, and submission, and the exchange of money for erotic labor. Ultimately, I argue that professional erotic dominance is interesting not for its exoticism, but for its mundaneness, for the normal social dramas that play out on its stage. Goodbye, Omaha. Some background on the project. The germ of this idea, <laughs> the germ of the idea for this book emerged in 2005, when I was a second-year graduate student taking a sociological methods course at Columbia University. 
I was writing a paper about catcalling on the streets of New York, and another student in my class mentioned that some of the women where she worked often discussed their experiences with catcalling and might be eager informants for my project. It turned out she worked at a dungeon. After speaking with several of the dominatrices at this particular house, I had many rich catcalling narratives on my tape recorder and many more questions. Who were these women, and what did they do behind these closed doors? Did they really have control over their male clients? How did gender and power work in these interactions? Certain that this topic would be super saturated, I poured through the usual academic resources and was surprised to find no studies that focus on professional dominatrices and few answers to my questions. The professor who taught my methods class was concerned for my professional future as an academic where were I to pursue such an unconventional and potentially purient topic. Quote, You'll never get a job as a professor in Omaha if you do this, he cautioned. Shortly thereafter, however, my intellectual masochism got the better of me. I bid Omaha farewell and began conceptualizing this project. A couple of years later, during an early stage of my research on the topic, I attended a, quote, fetish party at a club on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. When I was introduced as a researcher who was working on a project about pro-doms, one of the partygoers, a 30-something man in lederhosen, smiled and said, So you're the one this month. The attitude that research in this subject area has become redundant was prevalent not only among people at these parties and my interviewees, but also among academics with whom I had discussed the study. On one level, this attitude is surprising, considering how I encountered the seemingly how often I encountered the seemingly contradictory position that it was a frivolous or useless topic of study. On another level, however, it was expected. After all, I had been one of those people who had not anticipated the dearth of published research about professional erotic dominance. To date, there has not been a systematic study of professional dominatrices. Research on erotic labor has focused primarily on prostitutes, and studies of sadomasochism, absor uh, and studies of sadomasochism absorb dominatrix-client relationships into the category of all sadomastic, sadomasochistic, rather SM relationships, without exploring what it what makes these paid encounters unique. The most Extensive of these latter studies is the work of Martin Weinberg, Colin Williams, and Charles Moser, 1984, on gay and straight sadomasochistic communities in New York City and San Francisco. Well, I qualifiers here for this study from 1976 to 1983, which included, but was not limited to, dominatrices. See also uh camel and t weinberg 1983 lee 1983 and patrius 1978 t weinberg 1983 provides an excellent summary of the relevant literature all right digging that one oh i'm gonna read all kinds of fucking books now the uh, the one study that deals with pro dom scott 1983 in their own right does an analysis that had been criticized as, quote, not scientifically sound. Yes, I, I would agree. Moser, 1984, page 42. To be clear, I am not asserting that this topic calls out to be studied because it fills a void in the literature, depending upon which social <laughs> scientist you ask. Either all elements of social worlds or no elements of our social worlds are worthy of study simply by virtue of existing. This topic is noteworthy not because it has ever been examined sociologically before, but because, as I will argue throughout this text by presenting in a clear and very pervasive social elements, such as 
micro-level control, and gender display, dominatrices allow us to understand these elements in new and unexpected ways. Looking at this corner of social life, it also sheds light on the erotic hierarchy that organizes our social world. Sadomasochism is a sexual practice that is at once complexly stigmatized, shrugged off as frivolous, and embraced within postmodern culture. In describing the public response to this practice, it is useful to draw upon the work of feminist theorist Gail Rubin, who argues that, quote, sexual stratification is, the, is one of the major systems of organization that underlie our experiences as human beings. She makes the claim that SM is just one form of eroticism that ex exists in a hierarchy of socially evaluated sexual activities. Quote, modern Western societies appraise sex acts according to hierarchical system of sexual value. Rubin explains, marital, reproductive heterosexuals are alone at the top of the erotic pyramid, while sadomasochists, sadomasochists are one of the, quote, most despised categories towards the bottom. 1992-279. I'm reading all these because uh, it's fun. To describe sadomasochism as non-normative, socially stigmatized erotic practice, however, is to tell only part of the story. Certainly, individuals who exchange or engage, as, is as it is written, in BDSM have historically proven subject to reproach, particularly stemming from the psychiatric community. 19th century sex researcher Richard Kraft Ebbing, so I don't know how you could be an 19th century sex researcher. That sounds like a fucking sus career, but uh, thank you, author who is credited uh, with coining the term sadomasochism, for instance, described the practice as both a perversion and affliction. This pathologizing attitude has continued to be evident in media accounts of BDSM practices, particularly when injuries resulting from these practices have come under public scrutiny. One 1976 Time magazine cover story, The Porno Plague, warns its readers about the burgeoning representations of SM in popular culture. More recently, in a 2008 ABC News article, Love Hurts, Love Hurts, Sadomasochism's Dangers, published online on Valentine's Day, a Columbia University psychology professor characterized interest in sadomasochistic practices as incompatible with a healthy psyche. That's me drinking a delicious Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola. Original taste. Coke. It's it. Coca-Cola. It's the one. Let's turn into a polar bear. Let me continue reading. At the same time, other oh, Santa. At the same time, psychiatric community has historically characterized dominatrices and their clients as maladjusted, however, such practices had not been subject to the same public scrutiny as other sexual activities at the bottom of Rubin's erotic pyramid. Somehow, Chris Gosselin and Glenn Wilson explain, most of the general public seem to have treated these excesses with some irreverence, although they have reached strong, reacted strongly against those who would legalize sex with children and even now have a considerable ambivalence towards homosexuality. They have made sadomasochism the subject of jokes, accepted it with casual shrugs, and treated those who enjoy its practices with the sort of tolerant bemusedness reserved for the slightly mad or simply ignored it. It's a quote from a uh, scholarly book in 1980, or maybe an article. 
We see the bemused acceptance manifest itself in the fashion industry, whose catwalks have featured models brandishing whips and uh, wrapped in leather. Gianni Versace's bondage collection of the early 1990s is one example. Dolce & Gabbana put out a similarly themed collection in 2007, causing one newspaper headline to exclaim, Dominatrix & Gabbana, Menke's 2007. The 1950s pinup girl Betty Page made a career out of modeling in fetish clothing and sadomasochistic themes in popular culture are not limited to the area of clothing design. A recent advertisement for Sunsilk hair products depicts a stiletto boot encircled by a whip and the tagline, my frizz is so wild even a dominatrix couldn't tame it. In another advertisement, a commercial for wonderful pistachios, a male voice intones, dominatrices do it, and a dom in gleaming boots is seen cracking open a pistachio with her whip. Miss opportunity for the heel, maybe. The cartoon characters on the television show Family Guy rarely dress in S&M regalia for comedic effect. The movie Secretary, uh, I said it like that on purpose, introduced one overtly sadomasochistic relationship to maintain audiences, or mainstream audiences. The popular television show CSI has included a dominatrix as a recurring character. On a 2005 episode of the television show House, a patient was brought to the hospital for injuries inflicted by a pro-dom. On a 2008 episode of the primetime drama Private Practice, one of the characters dressed up as a dominatrix brandishing a flogger at her lover. On a 2009 episode of the reality series Real Housewives of Atlanta, one of the housewives greeted a friend dressed for an elegant party with, Ooh, you look like a dominatrix. I love it. I love it too. I'm going to have to watch that one. It's relevant to our interests here at uh, this podcast and uh, reality issues. In 1982, American singer-songwriter John Mellencamp went to number two on the Billboard chart singing, Sometimes love don't feel like it should. You make it hurt so good. In her 2004 song, La La, pop princess Ashley Simpson crooned, You can throw me like a lineman. I like it better when it hurts. Although censors required her to change the lyric to, I like it better when we flirt for her halftime performance at the 2005 Orange Bowl. In 2011, a trip to the gym leaves the strains of Rihanna's S&M pounding in my ears. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but whips and chains excite me. And who could forget Madonna's role in perpetuating the mainstreaming of kink? In the 1990s, the pop superstar inextricably linked her name to BDSM imagery, specifically in the 1992 video for the song Erotica, in which she donned a black bodice and mask and seductively handled a riding crop and donned a... and 1995's Human Nature, in which dancers wrapped in a shiny, form-fitting black fabric contoured amid whips, chains, riding crops, and suspension ropes to the refrain, express yourself, don't repress yourself. And my dyslexia really got a hold of itself in that paragraph. Um, the Facebook application is super poke. Super, the Facebook application super poke, okay, that's a fucking thing, includes a dominate option illustrated by a whip-wielding cartoon avatar in a corset and fishnets. One issue of Time Out New York featured a dominatrix's dungeon in its apartments section. Among the other real estate items, the piece described the space as appearing, quote, as if it sprang from the pages of Martha Stewart Living rather than the stories of Marquis de Sade, Yun, 2007. And a search of the Amazon book list yields 3,835 hits for the keyword dominatrix, ranging from tell-alls, the, the domestic domina, 
My Life as a Suburban Mother and Celebrity Dominatrix, to the works of Erotica. She's on top, erotic tales of female dominance in male submission, to the sexual how-to, the mistress manual, the good girl's guide to female dominance, sex tips from a dominatrix, to books that, like this one, draw parallels between principles of erotic dominance and daily experiences, the corporate dominatrix, six roles to play to get your way at work, whip your life into shape, the dominatrix principle. SM practices then, and the figure of the powerful dominatrix in particular, while they continue to be characterized as submissive, are also, to some extent, normalized and maintain a relatively high level of cultural visibility. One night in March of 2008, I watch a rerun of Frasier. Frasier's producer, Roz, is attending a costume party dressed in a bondage costume. Waiting for her doctor to call with the results of a pregnancy test, she worries aloud that she will make a bad mother. Well, I don't think discipline will be a problem, Fraser quips. A few days later, the British tabloid, News of the World, comes out with the story that Max Mosley, head of Formula One's governing body, has been caught in a Nazi-themed sadomasochistic orgy. That same week, I walk past now-defunct Kim's video in Morningside Heights, area of Manhattan, and a large, glossy book propped in the window catches my eye. Its cover features a photograph of a dominatrix in leather regalia, posing seductively on a flight of stairs. The cultural symbol of the dominatrix, like that book, is both taboo and regularly on display. She is perceived with an unsteady mixture of repulsion, disinterest, concern, amusement, and fascination. Unfogging the window. This is just the introduction. Imagine, right? Not only is sadomasochism a prevalent theme in popular culture, but prior studies have indicated that the predilection for sadomasochistic sexuality is prevalent enough to call into question the classification of SM as an, quote, alternative sexual practice. Pro-doms and their clients are less than exotic in the sense that the sadomasochistic arousal is not unique to niche groups. In putting forth the argument that sadomasochistic practices illuminate a basic series of oppositions in the, quote, real world, I stand on the shoulders of those theorists who have argued that the inverse, conceptualizing sadistic and masochistic impulses as essential components of human life, which I agree is the kind of the basis of the book, and I, 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 well, I'll just continue. Obviously, the author has gone to much more effort to explain the subject. Sadomasochism practitioners include not only those, quote, hardcore individuals who go to BDSM clubs or pay to be flogged by women in leather, the sadistic and masochistic impulses have implications beyond the sexual sphere and have been theorized as phenomena that pervade daily life. And I'll get my own two cents in here uh, in a minute where, uh, if I forget, it has something to do with streaming and online content, but personalized mar- merchandising, etc., uh, but let's back up just a tip. Uh, the sadistic and masochistic impulses have implications beyond the sexual sphere and have been theorized as a phenomenon to pervade daily life. Sociologist Lynn Chancer, for instance, argues that the variety of relationships are, that are sadomasochistically oriented, regardless of whether the, quote, pattern appears in the well-published, publicized realm of sexuality or in other instances of everyday life, whether between a particular teacher and student, or a worker and boss, or another highly charged encounters between partners caught in symbiotic enmeshments of power and powerlessness. And when I, I think power and powerlessness, I think of the streamer and the subscriber, the fan who has like donated their 
life's earnings to someone um, out of uh, the same kind of motivational drivers that I think we'll probably end up reading about in this book. Um, I, I feel like uh, I feel like at some point we're going to have to get through like um, machine learning into this too. I really feel like you can tie machine learning's uh, psychological hooks into this as well, but um, I'll have to read more of all of them to develop a, a thesis here. Anthropologist and sexologist Paul Gebhard concurs, noting that sadomasochism is, quote, embedded in our culture since culture operates on the basis of dominance-submission relationships, and aggression is socially valued. Yeah, aggression is socially valued. For the same reason, historian and sexologist Vern Bullo makes the claim that, quote, to ignore sadomasochism is to ignore life itself. 1983. Give and take, aggression and submission, love and pain, love of giving pain, are not features of social life unique to a visit to the dungeon. Rather, we can use the dominatrix workplace as a laboratory for looking at a particular way that these basic principles manifest themselves. While pro-doms are both organizationally and conceptually embedded in a multi-tiered system of social relations, for instance, the SM scene in New York City the dungeon provides, in the SM scene, the dungeon provides a relatively circumscribed arena in which to explore broader social mechanisms. In considering the prospect that sadomasochism has implications beyond the sexual sphere, it is useful to draw a parallel with, Ju with, Judith, with Judith Butler's work on the practice of drag. Drag is a kind of theater in which gender display becomes both exaggerated and denaturalized. Butler contends that drag reveals the distinctness of those aspects of gendered experience which are falsely neutralized as a unity through the regulatory fiction of heterosexual coherence. In imitating gender, drag implicitly reveals the innovative structure of gender itself as well as, as, it, as its contingency. I just want to chew on that for a second. In imitating gender, drag implicitly reveals this imitative structure of gender itself as well as its contingency. <laughs> Emphasis in original. So the person who wrote it originally was also very proud of the writing. She goes on to argue, although the gender meanings taken up in these parodic styles clearly part of the hegem hegemonic misogynist culture, they are nevertheless denaturalized and mobilized through their parodic recontextualization. Right. In essence, drag contributes to our understanding of gender by exposing femininity as a performed role. Similarly, practices of sadomasochism that are naturalized in everyday life, for instance, a boss reprimanding his underling, are recontextualized in the dominatrix's dungeon. The sadomasochistic theater, by caricaturing them, increases their visibility and con contributes to our understanding of them. Sadomasochistic interactions are stylized representations of dominance and submission, but they are also able to lay bare and destabilize both uh, the taken-for-granted assumptions underlying such practices. Further, and here is where the queer theoretical frame comes in, in their putative reversal of gendered erotic roles, they've actually 
improve, <laughs> they actually provide an amplification of those roles as they exist in the, quote, real world. We'll get there. Don't worry. Let's see. I can give you... Trying to read ahead to see if I can get like in you know, all the thing I wanted to skip it. I'll read the next section. Why pro-doms? If sadomasochistic practices are a window into a set of relationships within postmodern society, why focus only on women who are paid for these practices? While the commercial dungeon happened to be the particular rabbit hole I fell into during that semester in 2005, there are several other reasons why I chose to pursue research focusing on pro-dom client relationships rather than on other types of sadomasochistically charged interactions. First, there is evidence that the results of studies in BDSM clubs and SM organizations are not representative of heterosexual sadomasochistic practices. Spengler, 1977. However, some sociological explorations of sadomasochism, notably Weinberg, Williams, and Moser's 1984 work, have sampled via sadomasochistic organizations. Thinking about sadomasochistic encounters among individuals with network connections to those organizations as representative of all heterosexual SM dyads is problematic. It has potentially skewed our understanding of heterosexual sadomasochistic practices. Professional dominatrices differ from other individuals who go to BDSM clubs in that their livelihood is bound up in the performance of socially prescribed eroticism. In these senses, the research presented here contributes to the literature about, quote, secret deviation. Petraeus, 1978, in a way that studies that have sampled via sadomasochistic organizations have not. While both dominatrices and their clients maintain varying levels of secrecy about their participation in these socially prescribed erotic and wage-earning practices, from complete openness to selective openness to extreme closeting, it is clear that their negotiation of the secrecy in a practical sense, different from that engaged by in by people who are not involved in the commercial end of sadomasochism, pro-doms and their clients are not all at our hmm, pro-doms and their clients are not representative of all people who engage in SM, just as those who go to BDSM clubs or join sadomasochistic organizations are not representative of that population. But this study helps to complete the picture begun by those authors who focused on the latter. Another key reason to focus on the professional erotic dominance is that, as noted, prior studies have turned their attention to erotic commodification and to sadomasochism, but seldom to the intersection of the two. Studying, in particular, women who receive compensation for BDSM practices adds a layer of broader implications to this project. Ultimately, these women's stories teach us not only about the worlds of SM and erotic labor, but also more generally, and God help me, every time I see sadomasochistic, I'm going to say SM now, more generally about the interactions within commercial exchanges and the transformative power of money over intimate relationships. Ding, ding, ding. That's my connection to um, uh, machine gambling. As Viviana Zelzier compellingly argues, Zelzer, compellingly argues in the purchase of intimacy routine social i'm gonna have to get that one routine social life makes us all experts in the purchase of intimacy in the sense that individuals quote often mingle economic activity with intimacy the two often sustain each other i think anyone who's ever been in a domestic relationship and pondered the transactional nature of that relationship is probably um realized that you can break everything down pretty granularly into a a, a 
its component parts, let's say. Finally, although clients and individuals whose desires drive this industry, clients are the individuals whose desires drive this industry, and although I do include client data and discuss ways in which the social sphere sheds light on the repressed elements of masculinity within daily life, the voices we hear in this text are primarily female. My interest from the day, first day I sat in the dungeon interviewing a group of women about catcalling was in this social sphere that happened, uh, that appeared to represent an inversion of the gender power hierarchy, and particularly in the dominant end of this exchange. At its core, this book is about the narratives told by a group of women who share the same job. A job that is, as they are acutely aware, and they are often articulate, organized as a reaction to the relationships of gender and power that pervade everyday life. All right. This is amazing. Okay, so I'm going to cut it off there. We're going to come back to this book. I'm going to read it a lot on my own, and I'll, I'll pull up some relevant quotes. Um, but check that out. It's incredible. Hello, if you're listening. Author um, Danielle Lindemann, you're a follower of mine now. That's pretty cool. Uh, you write cool books. Um, here, I'm going to continue on with today's paper in the USA Today. Here we go. And this will probably round it out, I think. So, well, one of a couple of remember uh episode maybe 16 i think it was the tc special edition i read a little bit about tc well here's a little bit more about tc brian alexander usa today san diego after three years of delays and nearly 36 years after 1986's original top gun film blasted into theaters tc took the stage at the top gun maverick world premiere wednesday to finally introduce his long-awaited jet field sequel does anyone want to see a movie in a movie theater? Let's do it, Cruz. 59 exhorted the raucous full crowd at the Naval Air Station, North Island's Lowry's Theater. Let's light the fires and kick the tires. Cruz had reason to celebrate at the hot-octane premiere, which included his red carpet arrival by helicopter aboard the USS Midway aircraft carrier. Uh, yeah, that's pretty much the reason why I read that section. If you go and check out his uh, helicopter landing, um, wow, what a video that was. A little boy is landing his helicopter on the big aircraft carrier. Insane. It's, it's as funny as it is sad. Right, here's something interesting. TV social ratings. 
Uh, these are the social content ratings between April 25th and May 1st. Original social media posts and engagement stories related to series and specials. Social data from Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. So these are each of the shows. Uh, WWE Monday Night Raw. Or no, I'll start at the bottom. All AEW Dynamite, the kind of like independent wrestling thing. 651,000 interactions. This is Us, 733. Uh, Friday Night Smackdown, 915,000. American Idol, 1,532. WWE Monday Night Raw, 1,796. So that basically means that uh, stacked up, they're getting like 2.5 million wrestling alone. is getting like 2.5 million interactions. Um, that's crazy. That's a lot. A lot of social, so that means basically, basically, if you really want to like expand your brand or something like that, start talking about wrestling. That's pretty much it. It means that there's a lot of uh, social media uh, crossover on uh, wrestling topics. So uh, if you want to talk about wrestling, then you're going to get some listeners. It's official. Dolly Parton rocks. The country music legend was announced Tuesday as a 2022 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee. Yet another industry kudo in a career brimming with accolades. Though Parton, 76, initially balked, she tried to decline her nomination on social media. She came around days before the announcement, saying in an interview with NPR's Morning Edition that if she were inducted, she would accept gracefully. To be sure, the Tennessee singer and songwriter is hardly the first country musician to be enshrined in the Cleveland rock pantheon, but the list, to date, largely consists of country pioneers whose artistry cemented the foundation upon which rock and roll built its house. They include Hank Williams, Jimmy Rogers, and Johnny Cash, not to mention Elvis Presley, whose vocal alchemy turned country and blues into rock. Well, and many other things too, but whatever. Parton's inclusion should open the gates to other greats who are equally deserving. Here are five bona fide country legends whose influence also radiates well beyond Nashville and should follow her into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I will list them off really quickly. Garth Brooks, Patsy Cline, Willie Nelson, Glenn Campbell, and Chris Christopherson. But let's read the Garth Brooks section really quick. Garth Brooks, 60, is widely credited with infusing a rock attitude into country music shows, whether on the road, in big stadiums, or in the confines of a Las Vegas residency. Beyond the sheer volume of his multi-million sales, which put him in the same company as Elvis and the Beatles, Brooks already is enshrined in the Country Music Hall of Fame and the Songwriters Hall of Fame, and at 58 was the youngest recipient of the Library of Congress Gershwin Prize for the popular song. The crossover appeal of Brooks' works was evident in 1991 when his third album, Rope in the Wind, entered the Billboard album chart at the top slot, the first time ever for a country artist. If there were ever a country musician whose vision for himself went well beyond the confines of his genre, Brooks is it. And on that subject, I'm going to whip out a Parade magazine to finish the show. Parade magazine, which I believe is uh, relatively on topic, but you tell me.
Oh, hold on. Actually, here's an Ask Marilyn by Marilyn Vassavon. UID isn't the only people that can read this. I enjoy reading the comic sections in the newspapers. And this is from, uh, this is Parade Magazine, March 6th. I enjoy reading the comic section in newspapers, as I'm sure countless others do, and have long been puzzled by the way writers come up with new ideas every day. I'm not referring to the strips that have a continuing storyline. How in the world do they do it? Tom Delia, Mount Pleasant, Michigan. The kind of creativity looks like magic or a gift, but I hear it's just plain labor-intensive. A friend who performs stand-up comedy in clubs told me his job was indescribably difficult. Horseshit. Great presentation came almost naturally to him. The way cartoonists draw with ease, but he said he was on the lookout for material during almost every white waking hour and constantly making notes. Sending questions to Marilyn at Parade.com. Love those same comments. Love you all very much. Anyway. It's Dolly and James. That time, a country superstar and a best-selling author read a book together and became best buds. By Mary Laura Philpott. Cover and opening photography by Ashley well, you won't be able to see the photography, but I'm viewing it, and it's spectacular. Everyone on set is grinning. Country music superstar Dolly Parton and best-selling novelist James Patterson have been gamely striking poses for nearly an hour. The, the, the diminutive part. The diminutive Parton perched on, a, on vertiginous heels upon a wooden crate to bring her closer to Patterson's height. Everyone on set is grinning. Country music superstar Dolly Parton and best-selling novelist James Patterson have been gamely striking poses for nearly an hour. The diminutive Parton perched on vertiginous heels upon a wooden crate to bring her closer to Patterson's height, horsing around with props ranging from a long-stemmed rose to a shiny red guitar. You hold it, Parton says, laughing. No, that's backwards. They have charmed the whole crew, gathered at a studio outside Nashville. The pair recalls the first time when they met, in early 2020. We just clicked, really, Parton says. Back then, Patterson had flown to Nashville to introduce himself and float the idea of writing a book together. Now they've reunited to promote their partnership's result, a high-stakes thriller set in the glitzy world of country music. Run, Rose, Run will be published on March 7th, so uh, just uh, several <laughs> couple months ago just three days after Parton debuts a new album of the same name, featuring 12 songs based on the book's characters. What's clear from their camaraderie is that something even bigger than a book uh, with its own soundtrack has emerged from their collaboration, a genuine friendship. While they may be mismatched in the height and glamour, no offense at all to Patterson, but who could possibly sparkle at comparable wattage to Dolly Parson, these two, oh, I'm going to page nine of Parade Magazine to finish this article. These two highly uncommon figures have found that they have a great deal in common. We're both from small towns, Patterson said. The odds of us getting to where we are from where we started are about 10 million to one. Patterson was born in Newburgh, New York, Parton in Pittman Center, Tennessee. Both were raised in households where money was scarce. And I think we're both kind of down to earth, he says. 
All true, as is the fact that both are mind-bogglingly prolific creators, and business people who, still working nonstop in their mid-70s, reign over profitable and philanthropic empires, branded under their names. Patterson, 74, began scribbling, as he says, in his 20s. By the time he turned 30, he had penned his first mystery novel and won an Edgar Award for it. He continued to write novels on the side while sending the ranks to CEO at ad agency J. Walter Thompson before quitting in 1996 to write full-time. Today, sales of his books total a staggering $425 million worldwide, a number that rises rapidly as Patterson and his team of co-writers publish dozens of new books each year, in addition to standalone thrillers and series featuring popular characters such as Alex Cross. Plus, high-profile collaborations, including The President is Missing with Bill Clinton. He produces books for children and teens. Beloved in the literary world, he is honored with both the National Humanities Medal and the National Book Foundation's Literarian Award for outstanding service to the American literary community. For several years, he has been recognized by Guinness World Records as the author with the most New York Times bestsellers. Speaking of records, Parton 76 may have risen to the level of cultural icon, but she began as a teenage singer-songwriter in the 1960s, soberly working her way through the male-dominated music industry to turn a guitar, notepad, and wry motion into hit songs. Nearly six decades later, she had sold more than 100 million albums worldwide, surpassed 3 billion streams globally, and shows no sign of slowing down. Case in point, in the last year and a half, the same uh, time period which, uh, in which she was working on Run, Rose, Run with Patterson, she released a holiday album, A Holly Dolly Christmas, which debuted at number one on the Billboard Country Chart, uh, published a New York Times bestselling collection of song lyrics and stories, Song Teller, launched a perfume, and continued her Emmy-winning production deal with Netflix. She has racked up 10 Grammys, plus the Lifetime Achievement Award, nine Country Music Association Awards, nine Academy of Country Music Awards, and three American Music Awards, more than earning her place in the Country Music Hall of Fame. What's left to reach for this level of success? Now it's time to have fun, Patterson says. Together they dreamed up the story of Annie Lee Keys, a young singer trying to make it in Nashville while on the run from a mysterious past, and... Ruthanna Ryder, a Parton-like legend who takes the budding star under her wing. In imagining Annie Lee's journey, Patterson plumbed Parton's memories of moving to Nashville straight out of high school at 18 and imbued the character with her creator's own ambition and work ethic. My grandmother used to have a saying, hungry dogs run faster. Patterson says, Dolly and I are both driven. At the mention of the word, at mention of the word, Parton begins reciting lyrics to Driven, a song she wrote for the new album. I've got to drive. I try to do more than survive. Reaching out to take what life has given. One thing you can say for me is I'm driven. I think that's it. I really like that. It's in the free insert in the fucking uh, local newspaper, but I thought it was an interesting. Um, never know where you're going to find something good. And, uh, yeah. I think that's all I got for you today. But... I'm not going to leave you totally empty-handed here. I do have this to share with you, too.
a hot knife. He makes my heart a cinema skull. Squeeze show him a dancing bird of paradise. If I'm butter, if I'm butter, if I'm butter, then he's a hot knife. He makes my heart a cinema skull. Squeeze show him a dancing bird of paradise. He excites me. Must be like the Genesis of rhythm.
I was recently rid of a man again, so I caught.